If I was a white guy, they would think I was a fucking genius. Like, I don't need you to own me. Like, I don't need that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna play with that. And so like you're telling me like you're this academic, you want to study, and, and I'm like, but I wrote a fucking book with every single technique, and you're complaining that you want to study my reports. Like, come on. I gave you step-by-step -step instructions. The art professors are also failed artists. They never really got to get to that point where they were professional in the sense of thinking about what part of the market they want to be in. Like since the beginning of my career, nobody took me seriously. Nobody thought I was good enough or even wanted to pay attention. And that's fine, that just gave me more freedom to do what I wanted. Can't really get through their heads, like they don't really understand what it's like to be on a, on a budget as a working artist. But then you get down to like level 12 and that's deep listening, where you filter through all of these different emotions and you get to a point where nothing triggers it outside of the deep, seated need for that sound to be placed right then and there. I'm, I just don't care about stability. I only care about where the work goes next. I've always been like that. Chance is freedom, you know? Oh man, I'm gonna play till I'm dead. <laughs> this is Precariat Content. Thanks for staying with me. This summer has been a busy one for me, and it's made it a challenge to keep the podcast coming out regularly. I've been at work on a sort of sequel to Precariat Content with my frequent collaborators Kat Bloomkey and Jonathan Carroll. We're producing a VR documentary called Resourced. Like this project, it focuses on the experience of workers, but instead of exploring artists' work, we profile Toronto-based frontline workers. We use 3D mapping, generative sound design and composition, and computer-generated animation to create immersive, stylized portraits of the workers most directly impacted by policies that undermine the marginalized, including social workers, street nurses, and overdose prevention and sex worker activists. I'm planning to share the interviews here in a later miniseries. Two have moved studios. So, if this voiceover sounds thrummy, that's because after my landlord squabbles, I'm now installed at the Brandscape Co-op at Dufferin and DuPont. I've also been at work at a record that, along with collecting together some of the experimental music produced for this show, features original offerings. But more on that at the end of the interview. Episode 12 features New York-based abstract turntablist Maria Chavez. Maria is a multidisciplinary artist from Peru by way of Houston, Texas. She has pioneered a singular style of improvisation on the turntable involving perfect and destroyed vinyl and styli. She is an author, a teacher, a DJ, and an outspoken critic of the institutions of fine art of which she finds herself, against all odds, a part. This latter characteristic is amusingly exemplified in her recent work in painting, which she expands upon in this episode. This interview was recorded at Café La Gamin in Maria's rapidly gentrifying Greenpoint neighborhood. We met for lunch while Maria was briefly home in New York between stints in Italy, Germany, Istanbul, and the Rochenberg Captiva Residency. The chance or accident so fundamental to Maria's practice turns up here in the shape of the clatter of cutlery, the city's drony din, and the cafe's regular custom. I want to warmly welcome Kale Weir back to the pod, who joined me in producing the music for this episode. We worked for Maria's autodidactic master's thesis of technique, chance procedures on turntable. Despite her kindly encouragement of our efforts, Maria may not totally approve the results, nor of the liberties we took in attempting to execute her techniques. I cannot get away from my little digital modulators, and Kale was working with his antiquated CDJs. But that we took her instructions in our new direction would seem to be in keeping with the spirit of her work. 
Truth be told, big dumb animal that I am, I just haven't got the manual dexterity Maria has to grapple with the sensitivity of the turntable as an instrument. If you'd like to hear Maria's work live and in person, which I very strongly recommend, check her out October 12, 2018 at the Music Gallery's Exavant 13. My name is Maria Chavez. I'm a sound artist, abstract turntablist, and DJ. And you're painting now too? Is that still happening? Yeah, it's <laughs> happening. It's coming together. <laughs> but it's as a joke, you know, I'm making fun of fine art for giving sound art such a hard time. It's called Topography of Sound, and it will be a visual art show of these large landscape paintings that are actually magnified images of vinyl and needle. But when you make them really large and make them by hand, they look like they mimic 19th century landscape painting. And I'm just making fun of landscape portraiture and this fine art dialogue of, you know, visual art as a quiet white box show in, in a time when it's obsolete and sound art is important, but fine art galleries don't want to show it because it makes noise and they don't want sound next to a painting. As an abstract turntablist, I create sound pieces, improvised sound pieces that are short, like about two or five minutes long, and they're really just sonic ideas. They're um, they're not really songs. Um, I mean, yeah, they are sound pieces as well, but they're improvised, and I combine um, broken vinyl and perfect vinyl with broken needles and perfect needles, and I I layer the two together in different formations in order to create improvised moments where accidents and chance dictate the sound piece rather than my own personal choices. Um, and that way... I'll wait for them to stop. They're really just more sonic ideas rather than finished songs. Um, and it's an ongoing organic process of introducing new vinyl um, that either people bring to me from performances or uh, if I find them, if I go out and purchase records, the whole idea is that I'm not allowed to listen to them until I'm in front of an audience. And then that way we're all on the same page with the record so that it breaks down this hierarchy of like performers, genius, and audience as general public. Because I really feel like it's a it's a process between all three, uh, or all, uh, all of us together. I need the audience in order to make good sound pieces. And as an improviser, I don't use my studio to practice. I feel like the performance is the process. So I don't practice at home. It's really just as soon as it's time to play, that's the next phase of work. And without people, there is no phase. There is no process. Yeah, I haven't recorded an album since 2004. Um, Software, One O Tricks, Point Never's label invited me to make an album, but I was too busy touring to really focus on getting it done. It just wasn't really a priority because I'm, I'm a little iffy when it comes to the idea of permanent sound or commodified sound for you know, distribution. Um, it really is about live performance practice. So I often say that I'm involved in music industry in the performance side, but not in the permanent uh, 
recording side because I feel like I don't, I'm not a musician, so I don't have to follow this path that other musicians follow where they get a band together, they practice, they record something, they put it out, and then they do it all over again. Then they tour to promote the album. Like Every time I'm on tour, it's not to promote anything, it's just to play. And I like that dialogue better than having something to push onto people. Also because the improvisations are more valuable as a, oh, damn it, this is so crazy. Yeah. New York is so loud, I didn't realize it was so loud. I like to perform and I feel like the performance, the actual action of it in relationship to the audience is so key in the end result of it that it's when people leave the show that's what that's the album to me so right now my whole my whole practice really when it comes to improvised performance is it's really like redefining what an album can be so that's why I wrote my first book of technique chance procedures on turntable that to me is an album form it's a documentation of my techniques and then you can use your imagination to put it together and that's an album so I made all this work for software they dropped me wasn't a big deal um, I ended up making these wind, wind instruments for uh, for the Judd Foundation um, and to me because software uh, commissioned me to make those sculptures prior to dropping me. They still had to keep me on um, for the festival, for the Marfa Miss Festival. I felt like the, the sculptures ended up being the album. So to me, that is the album that I made for them, was the sculptures for the Judd Foundation. Uh, now, the recordings from the original album that I made for them, I just released with Documenta 14. I felt like that, to me, was a better form of releasing an album in secret where people it's a 42 minute sound piece that has some of my sound pieces in it from the album uh, along with um, recordings or old records of sound effects records radio effects t test tone records from all over the world that I've collected and I made sonic vignettes with the sound pieces as the core of each movement of the, of the whole 42 minute piece and I thought that giving it giving the album to Documenta was actually better than trying to find another label because this whole every time a ear disown um, thing that Documenta is doing with these commissioned radio pieces are going to be played in more radio stations all over the world from March until September than any other label could ever offer me. So then again, redefining what an album really is. Yeah, it was called the Lanzens, my, my Lanzen series, and it, that's the that's what I call the stamp at the end of every record that where the label is. There's always a runoff groove, um, and that's actually a mistake from the machine. Um, but we've been taught from society and from music industry that this locked groove, this last groove of the end of every vinyl record, um, is when is the signal to turn it over or that the record is finished. And so before I was becoming um, an abstract turntablist, I was really struggling with the, with the DJ world. And this was like 2000, 2001. I was like really frustrated, just trying to get ahead, but nobody would really give me a shot. And I was just wanting to be more creative and the techno kids just weren't having it. And then there's Autoker and this whole British electronic thing that was making things super stringent and like super snobby. And I was just getting really bored. And, so one day I had a DJ gig in Houston, and I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cause some trouble." And I decided, I told them I was gonna do uh, 
minimal techno album or minimal techno set and I brought all my records everyone believed me and then I ended up just DJing the ends the lands ends of all of the records and beat matching them together and by like I think I got 10 records in so they let me they, they kind of believed me for a minute but then after that the the owner was like you gotta stop right now he like pulled the plug cut me off sent me on my way, kicked me out. He's like, you're never going to DJ in Houston again. And he's right. Now I just DJ all over the world instead. It's better. Focus on your jaws and your lips. 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 And that's a good question about career because I think people that are in denial about the career are probably the ones that aren't going to get very far in it. And I know it's really harsh to say that, because um, I don't really see my my work as a career, but it is my focus, and it has been since I was a teenager. Um, I guess there's what, what I tell people, especially when I'm teaching kids at universities, is I'm normally reminding them there's two kinds of people in the world, in, in the art scene especially, in the performance scene. They're the ones that naturally are, and the ones that want to be seen as that and so the ones that want to be seen as that are the ones that are going to be after meeting you to get something from you so there's that to me is a careerist they're not they're not making work because that just comes out of them they're making work because they're trying to get up on a ladder to become known and to be treated as and to be seen as a creative person unfortunately they're doing themselves a huge disservice by doing this because they're not really recognizing what they are capable of and what they can do outside of being creative because they're so invested in how they want to how they want people to see them and they, they don't see themselves. And so then you'll see a lot of a lot of these careerist artists that you know have these breakdowns or you know they can't handle it and they disappear and, and because they it's not really they don't have a creative driving force. Their driving force is all ego, it's all visual, you know? Whereas there's the other side, which is just a natural creative person. Like, no matter what they do, no matter where they are, they're gonna make something. And it doesn't matter if they're famous or not, they have to do it. It's just who they are, and there's no question about the fact that their minds are just constantly creating. And so for those people, if they're bright enough, savvy enough, to figure out how to manipulate the system around them to create currency with their own creativity, then yes, that is a career in itself. But that's a cultivated career to enhance and manage and process a, cre a naturally creative action that just comes out no matter what. Of course, there's the other one, which is the wild creative, which you can't hold down. They're totally wild. They're homeless for like years. They're you know they go crazy or something. And that that's the other side too. And that's like the myth, myth, the myth of the artist, right? Like the starving artist that's nuts and wild and you can't control them or whatever. But that's that's really rare. I think I think people try to be seen as that too, and so then they. But it really just gives them an excuse to have drug problems or something. And I know it's harsh to say it. Like I'm not. Like, especially when I say it to, to, to students, like undergrad art students, they're, they're just like, some of them start crying. And they're just like, how can you talk like that? And I'm like, 
what part of the art market do you want to be involved in? Do you even have that discussion in your school? And most of the times, like eight times out of ten, they don't. And it's because the art professors are also failed artists. And so they don't, they never really got to get to that point where they were professional in the sense of thinking about what part of the market they want to be in, whether it's locally, big fish and small pond like we just talked about, or if they want to be in some kind of an international platform. And to think that way isn't careerist in my eyes, because that's just the reality of, where, of what the structure is that's already laid out. Um, I think it is careerist if you're saying, I want to be seen as this, I want, so I want, I want Larry Gagosian. So I'm going to make all the work look like what Larry Gagosian shows, and then that way he'll pay attention. I mean, it's impossible because he only represents the biggest names in the world, but still, that's just a, an example of what, of what I mean. Like, I think there's a difference between a careerist artist and an artist that is honest and respectful of how their career can evolve. Oliveros, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, she's, she really was about removing the self from the action. So it's not to play to be heard, it's to play to belong, to, to, to place yourself where you really feel it belongs. It's not about the ego and about people seeing that you're doing your thing. It's about making smart choices and really being a, a filter of like letting the sound go deep go deeper than a reaction, like call and response. That's like an amateur way of improvi improvising because you hear someone and then you respond to them. It's a conversation. That's like level one. But then you get down to like level 12 and that's deep listening where you filter through all of these different emotions and you get to a point where nothing, nothing triggers it outside of the deep-seated need for that sound to be placed right then and there. And that's, that's ultimately what I take away from deep listening, I'm sure other people will say other things. That's the beauty of Pauline's work was everyone got to uh, translate it how they wanted to. The one thing that I, I keep thinking about now that she's gone is I keep remembering when she found out that I was going to move to New York from Houston. She was already up in Kingston. She was teaching, but she was performing a lot more, getting more prominent again after being in school for like teaching in schools for like 30 years and I remember her being like all right if you're gonna do it we're gonna do this and I was just like I didn't really know what that meant at the time and then suddenly I was on a plane to Vienna or I was you know being nominated for for a fellowship that I had had no idea who nominated me and now I'm slowly learning that all of these little things that I've been receiving over the past nine ten years had been through her, and I didn't know. And so she was trying to help me advance my own career to ensure that I had a, a stable place to jump off of and to continue to create. And that's something that I'm not going to cry. I'm not going to cry. It's something that I really, I, it's like every day, like something else pops up. I'm like, oh, that was her. Like she did that, and I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't realize it. And I mean, she went the route of trying to do it her way until the 70s, realizing that there wasn't a lot of support for female sound artists at the time. And so then she went into uh, teaching. And then she decided to leave teaching in the late 80s. And she told me this story about how um, 
when she decided she wasn't going to teach full-time anymore, she, was, she quit her job at Mills or somewhere, and she decided to make these postcards with her on an accordion, and it says, available for lectures, workshops, performances, uh, and she said, and I mailed it out to everyone I knew. I didn't care who it was. I just mailed it to everyone, like hundreds of postcards. I wish someone had one still. I would really love to see it. And I was like, weren't you like embarrassed to ask for help like that? And she was like, no, I knew that if people want me around, people want to hear me, they need to know. And so I, I felt that this was a real gesture of letting people know. And if they didn't care, then they wouldn't pay attention, you know? And of course, that's how all of her performances through the 90s and, and up until she passed away just started to accumulate and grow. And so is that a careerist move? I don't think so. I think for her, that was the next phase of her process, of her practice. Um, I think it would have been a careerist move if she was only buddying up with museum execs all the time to try to get a show. Like, she still hasn't had a solo exhibition of her work, and that's really disgusting. And she's, and she's gone now. She just got the Whitney Biennale, like, the Whitney Biennial, like, in 2013, 2014. I mean, she was like 80 years old. She should have gotten that when she was in her 40s. That, to me, is a great example of a person that is just naturally creative and building on their own work, making a currency of their own work in order to survive on their own, versus a careerist who is only looking at people to gain things from them. kind of confused by why I got, I, why I became this way. And I always ask my mom, because if you look at my cousins, or even the other Latino kids in my school, I, I, I really can't explain why, where this drive comes from, or why I've always been this way, or, but I've always known that there's something about me that's just like this because I come from an immigrant mom, single mom, two toddlers and a suitcase from Lima, Peru, leaving Shining Path Gorilla, Peru for Austin. My mom didn't speak any English, somehow managed to get a master's degree at the University of Texas in accounting, managed to start her own accounting business on top of getting some kind of a corporate gig that made us move to Houston. From there, she was going to school. She would leave the house at four to go to school until seven, then go to her job from seven until six, come back, feed us, take care of us, and do it all over again the next day. And I don't really know how she had this drive to do that, but I think something about that drive is, I guess if you want to put it in that way, um, what did you call it again? Subject position. The subject position. I guess this is technically my subject position should be where I, I shouldn't have any access to any of this. And sometimes I get like like um, interns at fellowships and things that are from nepotism that look at me and they're like, you don't belong here. Like, you're not supposed to be here. And I'm just like, yeah, you're right. But I'm here anyway. Like, what are you going to do about it? Normally they just tell on me on the director and, you know. <laughs> when I'm in trouble. I'm always in trouble with institutions. It's really weird. But that's another whole other thing, discrimination thing. 
I remember when people like kids from the Mexican neighborhood that was like a few miles away from my school were getting bussed in to my school and I was so excited I was like wow brown people finally I'm surrounded by all these white kids and nobody wants to be my friend because I'm the only you know Hispanic person here and then they got bussed in but then they didn't want to talk to me because I was a gringa like I didn't speak Spanish and I and I like why do you talk like that why do you talk like you're smart or something and I'm like I don't I don't know, or why do you talk like you're white? And I'm like, I didn't know that I was talking like I was white. This is just the environment that I grew up in, and you know, why do you talk like you're all smart and shit? That's what that's what I would hear a lot. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't. What I'm supposed to dumb it down to make you feel more comfortable? This is like conversations I was having like when I was nine. You know what I mean? So I've always been sort of weird and. I, I can't really answer that question because technically where I come from I'm supposed to still be in Houston probably have a family you know have a regular job like barely making ends meet or something you know but I'm not I'm, I'm here like there was a whole year where I was just living off of coffee and rice and beans like I was so poor and I still am sometimes I still have those moments where I have nothing but I'm not afraid of that because I've already experienced it for so long. And I don't have anyone attached to me, so I don't have that responsibility. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I've been able to get to where I am, because I just don't care about stability. I only care about where the work goes next. I've always been like that. Well, yeah, when I found it, I was just like, whoa, they <laughs> hold it together. Like, it, but that, that, that's the thing. Some people don't know. They don't get it. Like, they thought I was actually playing something that was doing that. Right. And I was like, no, that was the physical friction of two records rubbing up against each other right. with speed, with, with RPM. Right. And they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, I know. It, it blows my mind, too, like the squeaks. And, but you can, that's why you, you that's like the, the three-layered method that, that I wrote about in my book. If you have three layers, um, a 12, a 10, and a 7, you hold the 7-inch down so it's not moving. You have the needle on the 7-inch, but the 10 and the 12 are still moving underneath. And you turn up all of your EQs, all of your gains. All of the sounds of the scrapings of the 10 and the 12 feed up to the 7, and then the needle picks that up. Mm. And it, beco it becomes this weird, like, excavating microphone but with vinyl, it's, it's really special. And then sometimes you can actually still hear a sample from what's recorded in the vinyl, like in the 12 inch mm -hmm. from down below. It's That's really crazy, crazy. yeah. Brilliant. And so when people always ask me about recordings, my first question is, why is it so important to you? Like, why do you need to own me? You already have me, it's in your head. You're watching it, you're there. If anything, you own me more that way than if you were to buy something that is completely out of context, you know? And I, I think that's really important to remind people, like, I don't need you to own me. Like, I don't need that. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna play with that. And so, like, you're telling me, like, you're this academic, you wanna study, and, and I'm like, but I wrote a fucking book with every <laughs> single technique, and you're complaining that you wanna study my course. Like, come on. I gave you step-by-step -step instructions. <laughs> People are always like, well, aren't you afraid of people that are going to sound like you? 
start their own turntablism careers. I'm like, what's wrong with that? Because no one can sound like me. They can try, but why would they want to? Like, they can sound like themselves, and maybe from their experimentations with my experiments, they discover something else. And then it only builds and grows. Like, what's wrong with a huge avant abstract turntablist scene? Like, right now, there's like 15 of us. What if there was 4,000? What would happen then? What would sample culture become in, in pop music if there's a huge abstract turntablist scene that happens? And if I was part of that by helping it grow, by giving people step-by-step -step techniques, is that bad? Is that wrong? No, I think it's part of the dialogue. I think it's part of the generosity and the community. And I mean, like, you know what? I'm not afraid to share this with you. I think, I think this is important. You should have it too, because it's not mine anyway. This was shown to me by chance. So technically, like, I can't own shaking a table so the needle will jump across you know, the, the platter of the, of the turntable. Like, that's not mine. That's physics, you know? That's gravity. That's, that's ours. And so for me to claim my practice as my own and no one else can do it but me, I think is, is shunning the responsibility of community. And I don't believe in that. And I think, I think people are so quick to assume that I want to own this, and I don't. That's why you don't get to own me, because it's not, it's not about me, it's about us. And that's why I want you to come in and sit really close to me. In, in that one video, do you see all the people were standing behind me and like looking down? There was this one guy, his head was right here. I was just like, get out of the way. It's too close. But I really, now especially, if I'm performing in a, in like a theater with a stage, I have the audience come up to the stage, like, or I come down or, because I don't, I don't want this hierarchy anymore because that is what permanent sound music industry is. It's maintaining this hierarchy of performer as genius, musician as genius, artist as genius, and I'm not, I'm not making that claim. Phil Niblock, my grandpa my most loved, cherished person, my other one. Um, he's touring harder than me, and he's going to be 85 October 2nd. All he does is make work, play, and now, you know, he's at a point where he's having retrospectives at the Tate and whatever. He's earned that shit, for sure. And yeah, when people ask me how he's doing, I'm just, I just tell them the same thing. Like, he's going he's gonna to play until he's dead. And, and that's, that's my, my work ethic now. It's like, this is it. This is what I do. This is, there's no other focus. I'm just gonna tour and play until I'm dead. And unfortunately, that might come faster than I, than I want because of the lifestyle. There's no sleep, lots of travel. I really don't think human bodies are supposed to travel in the air that fast, you know? Like right now, I have this tour, I call it tour cough. Like I get tour flu, you know? And now, like, total this whole year, I've only been in New York three months this whole year. Um, last year was similar. I've been touring this hard since 2013. Um, I'm grateful that I have the opportunities to tour this way. Um, but I know that this is part of the work. This is part of, 
because I don't release anything. So I have to go to the people. I have to play for the people. And I really love how everything is starting to evolve now. Like, instead of just going and doing one solo turntable set, I do one solo turntable set in an art gallery in the early evening, and then the whole group and I go to a club, and then I DJ all night. And then we just dance to house music or techno and just have a really fun time. And then they get to see these two sides of me. I just I feel like I really need to play. I don't care about if I make money or not anymore. I just want to play. I want to see how people react to different songs. I want to see how people react to different sound ideas when I perform. And I think now is a time where it's just, and especially after Pauline died, like I got this really crazy burst of energy that I can't, I can't keep down anymore. Like it's like it's this time. It's time to go. Like it's time to push. Ugh, God, what a time for that question. First of all, my mom's a big fan, but it took her 10 years <laughs> to become a fan. She just wanted me to be stable and have a job and have health insurance and stuff. And we had a huge talk like a few years ago where I was like, Mom, you're just going to have to accept this is it. Like, this is, there's no more, you know? Thank you. But now she's a big fan. She went on tour with me this past spring, and um, she stayed for everything, for my DJ sets, for my performance, my lectures, everything. She was there. And now she has opinions. She's like, I really liked it when you did that one, but can you do it with less of the pop stuff, or less of the squeaks or whatever? I'm just like, was it too sharp? She's like, it was just too sharp. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I think before in my 20s, she didn't really understand until she went to, um, when I had my residency with the Merce Cunningham, a dance company uh, and the Dia Beacon Museum and I performed inside these gigantic Richard Serra sculptures and I invited her and her husband to come along to see it because I knew it was an iconic one-of-a-kind like lifetime type of deal and she went and she became completely silent for the rest of the weekend and she wouldn't say anything and I was just like what the fuck like what's wrong with my mom and afterwards I talked to my brother and he was like she was just stunned she didn't know that this is what this is what you wanted. Like a major museum institution, you can't deny the kind of work that's in this museum. To me, it's like one of the best museums in the world. Um, and then for her to like see like the New York Times and all of these TV stations and stuff was like, and then for me to be sitting with Merce Cunningham and Jasper Johns and you know having chats, like it, I think she was just really really blown away by the pers the prospect of what could happen. And then she started to see where the success actually can lie. And that's when she decided to accept it and be open to it. So now she's really, she's kind of difficult where she's like, what did you make today? And I'm like, well, as far as institutions are concerned, I don't know, it really just depends on the institution. Some are very kind, very helpful. Others um, come from old old backgrounds of academia and art and this kind of hierarchy of, of treating artists as a genius and I really don't I really don't like it. I don't I don't really believe that academia is the only way that an artist can be uh, relevant, frankly. Like I told this one art director, I was like, I don't really read. 
and I think about it a lot and I'm like, I should have said it, framed it in a different way where it's like, I don't seek out reading material, but I will read what finds me because I'll, fi I'll, I'll, I feel like if the book finds its way to me, it's because it's telling me something that I need to focus on as a, like a silent language of life. But how do you tell an academic that that only respects artists that have master's degrees or, you know, MFAs from, from Yale or, you know, some, something like that? Like, and definitely those kids, you know, become more successful faster because they have that access to the curators and everyone. And, and that is pretty frustrating when curators don't take you seriously because you're a college dropout. And like, shouldn't you actually take me even more seriously because I didn't go to school, I just did it. And now, and I wrote a book, so technically that's my master's thesis, if you want to think about it. When I write the second book, it's going to be my doctorate. I think that's why Goldsmiths was so generous with the research fellowship, because they were just like, you are a real-life working artist, and we need that voice in this, in this school, in this program. And they also don't understand the, the idea of starving artists, because a lot of their artists come from nepotism, so they have like trust funds and things. And, um, and so that's really frustrating when you're in an artist residency and they tell you that they want to take you on a trip, but it's going to cost, you know, 60 euros or something. And I'm like, I can't, I can't spend that. I'm not touring. I need to hold on to that. And they get really frustrated. Like, it's only 60 euros. And I'm like, yeah, it's 60 euros. Like, this is, I don't have that to just spend all the time, you know? And that's something that a few institutions don't, can't really get through their heads. Like they don't really understand what it's like to be on a, on a budget as a working artist. Because a lot of the working artists right now are, come from families of wealth. I'm just challenging a lot of different institutions in different ways. I don't mean to, I'm not trying to, it just kind of turns out that way. And I'm trying to figure out a way to not be trouble anymore, but I feel like each, it, and I'll have to deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis. I don't think people want to represent me, you know? I'm too all over the place. I used to want to be represented, I used to want to have an agent, but now I've come to a point where I just, I mean, first of all, they don't want me, so why should I try? I don't play the same game that they do, so they don't really get it anyway. And yeah, it, it, it's that game of like, I'm not this young, gorgeous, nubile, whatever, you know, like, whereas the other girls are, and so they're, you know, getting picked up and, I mean, resident advisor, I think, is the best example. Like, they wouldn't even give me the time of day, like, a couple years ago until I got signed to software. And even then, they were like, well, we're going to wait for the album first before we, before we listen to you. And I was just like, okay. But then the album never came out. So then um, one person here in New York decided to interview me for the hour, their podcast, The Hour. And they didn't even put my name in the description or in the title. They just called it abstract turntablism. They didn't even say my name. They've never asked me to do a mix, you know, because I don't have an agency that'll pay them to give me the spotlight. And they don't want to give me the spotlight. And that's, that's them, that's Thump, that's everybody. But everyone's like, oh, but you're so successful, you're doing so well. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't get the same kind of press treatment as the other girls do. 
um, I get overlooked quite a bit, but I've always gotten overlooked. Like since the beginning of my career, nobody took me seriously. Nobody thought I was good enough or even wanted to pay attention. And that's fine. That just gave me more freedom to do what I wanted. And now I have a fan base that just trusts me and they'll just listen to whatever I make. And I'm really lucky to have that, you know. So now I'm at a place where it's like, I don't, I don't need one. And they'd really have to sell me something like, oh, I should say Francisco Lopez doesn't have an agent. And he is my, my hero because he's one of the most famous multi-channel sound artists to date. And he, has, he hasn't had any help at all. He's only done it by himself. And I really respect that. New York City is one of the most important cities in the world, and it's true. You can come here, go to a party, after dreaming for years of wanting to work with so-and-so or such-and-such, and go to one party, meet someone, and suddenly you're working with them. And it was a dream, like, years ago. You know what I mean? There's no way I would have achieved any of the things I achieved now if had I not moved here. It would have been impossible. Because Houston has an amazing improvisation scene. They're so talented. They come from Pauline School. Like, they're an amazing group. But nobody pays attention. Everyone pays attention to New York. It's just the way it is. It's just, it's just the cycle of things. It's been like that for a long time, and I think there's a reason for it, because everyone wants to come here. It has this, this whole legendary history, and the history is there because because everyone wanted to be there, you know? I know I can't do that in London, even though it's old and big. It's a different scene on its own, but I definitely think the impact in one's career is greater if you came to New York City, but it's also harder, because it's so expensive here. It's a lot of work. I mean, that's why I work myself till I get tour flu, because it's like every everything I, I own here, like I'm touring just to pay for it. You know, and I come here with a chunk of change and it's all gone because it's towards rent or towards bills or something. And then you just go back out and collect more. It's like a little chipmunk. And it's a really intense environment. Like, there's 20 shows a day that all of them could be really amazing and important. Um, but there's also a shitload of people that will go to all of it and it'll be pretty well spread out. Like, it's, which I think is really great too. Like, I've been here now for over 12 years. And there's still scenes in this city that I've never, I'm not aware of. Sometimes I'll be like, who is this group of people? Like, oh, we've been around for a decade. I'm like, I've never heard of you. Like, and I know everybody. And I've never heard of you guys. And it happens all the time. You can't do that in Berlin. Like, you know everyone there, you know? You can't do that in London. You can't do that anywhere else. I think that's what makes New York City so special. You can disappear or you can get your spot on the stage. That's what my friend MV Carbon, she goes, New York City is just a gigantic stage and everyone wants their time on the stage and sometimes you get pulled off, sometimes you walk off, sometimes you fall off, you know. Yeah. I mean, even here, the, the, the rents were going sky high and then last year, started lowering it because nobody 
nobody was biting anymore. West Village right now, all the storefronts are empty because all the, even the corporations can't afford the rents. But now the landlords are left with empty storefronts with no rent. So now they're starting to be like, oh, maybe we need to lower it again or hope that a development company will buy it so that they'll just tear it down and build more condos. I'm just, I, I, for my, my attitude towards gentrification is just waiting for it to, waiting for the bubble to burst and then, you know, relishing when it's burst, but knowing that it'll, the bubble will get big again and, you know, it's just a cycle. So yeah, I just, I just wait. Well, I guess it's like chance, you know? You know this um, Stanford paper about uh, the algorithm of randomness? That's what I'm reading right now, because I'm really starting to, I'm like, is this really chance? Is this, is, can I group accident with chance like this? I think I can for now, but I kind of need to let it sit a little bit longer. Um, Ultimately, when it comes to chance and the turntable. I mean, the turntable is the perfect machine for chance because it's fragile, it's, it has a motor, and any movement you make, it reacts to it. And that's something that I, I really value when it comes to the, to the tool itself of the turntable because you have to either be really steady-handed to not want to make accidental noises, or you can just be sloppy and it becomes you know, it reacts to how you're, how you're moving. That's why this double needle has been so inspiring to me. Um, I wasn't expecting it. It was given to me as a gift from King Brit. Um, now I've been performing with it, using my, my old one needle techniques with it, and sometimes they don't work. Sometimes the needle doesn't work. Sometimes if I think I want to hear a certain sound for this piece, I'll put the record down and it's the wrong side. And it's not like I can be like, oh wait, stop, and then like, like I have to go with it. I have no choice. So to me, that that is the driving force of what keeps me interested and involved. Because it, it, it's almost as if it's honing my improvisation skills every time. Because I can't really depend on myself and my ideas. Like sometimes I'll be like, I think I want to hear this one song. But I'm on it, like especially when I tour in Europe, I don't bring my own equipment. I only bring my own needles and records and everyone has to provide the record player and the mixer for me. And sometimes they get me like really old turntables, like with the big platters like that, like from the 70s. And sometimes it's a basic 1200 technique because they can find it and it's pretty easy to find. But if it's the smaller cities, it's always exciting to see like who, what, what, what they can dig up as far as turntables are concerned. As, as long as it's not belt driven, that's my only request because belt, belt drive is just too hard to, to get this kind of articulation that I think drives the sound work in a clear direction. In Spain, actually, I had to use one of those turntables and it was really cute. Like, I was getting really rough with it and then after like a few minutes, it was just like, nope. And it went back, I was like, damn, this turntable's got some attitude. <laughs> I like it. And then with that, with the people coming and bringing records, they're like, can you please ruin this? And I'm like, yeah, it'll be the first piece. Yeah, <laughs> happily. And then that's normally the first piece I play. So, and then I, I point at them, like, thank you. Let's hear this together. I just got this. Let's see what happens. Let's see where it goes. And it normally is always a really interesting, because then it also keeps everyone 
even more invested too. Because they're like, oh wow, she hasn't heard this either. Let's hear it together. And I think, I think ultimately that that kind of focal point, not focusing on what a great turntablist I am, or what it's it's not about that. It's about allowing chance and accidents and being present together in a room, um, allowing that to have its impact. I don't, I don't like to make my work about politics in particular, but I do think that my presence in it is, is political enough. To look like this, to have a regular Hispanic name in an art museum next to all the rich white artist guys that are dead now, I think is a political action in itself. Because then you have kids coming in and there might be like a Gloria Ortega or someone, you know, that sees a Maria Chavez on the wall and she's like, oh shit. Her name looks like mine. Like, maybe I can do this too. And that's like a silent protest against this European Western arts market culture. I do speak out about how Peruvian artists are, are presented in international contemporary art discourse. I'm really disappointed with how European curators choose to present Peruvian artists, um, especially this one, um, pavilion, the Peruvian pavilion at Venice, at the Biennale. I'm really angry about it. I think it's pandering towards uh, Peru as a historical uh, like mess and not really respecting the artistry of Peruvian contemporary art. And it, it's really infuriating. It's like, why, why can't a Peruvian artist have a say in the, in the contemporary art discourse itself? like making conceptual installations or something. Why does it have to be Peruvian vi visually? You know, like why does it have to deal with that? Or like when people come up to me and they immediately assume that I speak Spanish, you know? And it's like, I, I understand, but I don't really like to. And I don't feel like I, I should have to participate in what you think a Peruvian should be. I'm allowed to be my own person and I can understand it and I can respond, but I don't, it's not my, it's not, it's not a language that I grew up on. I grew up in English. My first sound was in America. Hearing my first sound was in America. Like, we were learning English together, my family and I, you know, we only speak English to each other. Is that part of assimilation? If you, if that's what you want to describe it as, then it, it's more than welcome. Um, I don't really see it as assimilation as much as the physical act of what freedom really is, which is the freedom to be yourself no matter where you are, and, um, and to not be afraid of how other people view you and your freedoms. And ultimately, that's what, that's what this, all this work is about, is reminding people how valuable and how fragile freedom is. Chance is freedom, you know? I mean, we all live in our own cages of whatever, you know? I have mine, I'm not saying that I'm free from it, but I think that my practice helps me to understand, further understand what, what this idea of freedom really means. So I guess back to your other question of like subject position, I guess in a way, as a Hispanic woman, my subject position was I was told that I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted, and I did. We have a lot of editing to do. I know. <laughs> Precariat content is produced by me, Ben McCarthy. 
And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about artists I should interview for the podcast, please contact me at notsorry at paleeyesmusic.com. N-O-T-S-A-W-R-Y at paleeyesmusic.com. Cap Bloomkey, I care not for SEO. You can follow me on Instagram at paleeyesmusic. There you'll find updates about Resourced, VR documentary I mentioned above, and other ephemera from my erstwhile life and career. Artwork for Precariat content was produced by Allison Escobar. Web design is by Jonathan Carroll, and he's the guy you should harass if the website's not up to date, and it can be found at precariatcontent.com. There you can find pictures of the artists, links to their work, and to details referenced in the podcast. Thanks to Maria for fitting me into her schedule of going out into the world and making money to bring it back, to spend it all in New York, and going out and doing it again. And thanks to you for choosing to spend your time with this work. If you like what you've heard here, you probably have a sense of what to do about it. Subscribe, say nice things to the Apple overlords, post links to your favorite interviews, or just tell somebody. The next episode profiles media artist Aaron G. In it, she discusses echoism versus narcissism and its connection to AI, sound and technology, and her new project, LaughingWeb.Space, a web-based monument to survivors. We'll also attempt to make music that corresponds to Aaron's dream of spitting, screaming, and singing crystals. A final word. Before this podcast and the sound installation that preceded it, I made naive electronic pop music under the moniker Pale Eyes. Maybe my own precarity as an artist takes the shape of not being able to maintain all of my projects in the way I'd like. Or perhaps, and this is more likely, I got bored of the form. But Pale Eyes has gone up on the shelf for the past couple of years. I have not, however, quit making music. I've continued on, pushing my music-making experiment further afield, for better or worse. Some of these experiments never could have been paleized music. Some of them have evolved from my sound design work or from the music I've made for this project. Next month I'll release Little Music, a collection of some of the music I've composed over the last couple of years. I'll leave you here with part of a track that will appear on that album, called Susie's Sickness. (laughs) 